Okay, good evening, everyone. We're ready to begin. We're already recording. And let's start. Okay, so our topic for tonight is Wilhelm Marr and the League of Anti-Semites. So this is, we, we've been discussing the topic of anti-Semitism since October, and we're finally getting to the session where the term anti-Semitism historically comes into play. Modern anti-Semitism. It took us six months, but we made it. So first of all, the question is, why did the term, the new term, anti-Semitism, emerge in the 1870s, specifically in the 1870s? Why then? It was a product of historical circumstance. In the immediately preceding few years, Jewish emancipation was finalized in all of Central Europe and had already been achieved in Western Europe. And those arguing against Jewish rights in the 1780s, 1790s, early 1800s, were citizens looking to forestall the emancipation of a group that was a traditionally excluded minority. That was then. But by 1870, the enemies of the Jews are citizens, fellow citizens, looking to strip fellow citizens of their newly, of their newly achieved uh, political status. One is far worse than the other, meaning the anti-Semite of the 1870s is looking to do greater harm to the Jew than was the Jew hater of 100 years earlier. The role of the reform movement in all this is minor, but it does play a little bit of a role in the sense that there there were people who were fearful that the departure from traditional Judaism would give Jews an avenue that was more palatable to them than baptism to ingratiate themselves into the host community, something which the the real Jew hater didn't want to see happen. So the political conservative and the social conservative didn't, among the Goyim, didn't like reform Judaism because it was a threat. It, uh, It allowed for the possibility of the acculturated Jew who is now a competitor. Okay, now... There were many types of anti-Semites in the earliest years of modern anti-Semitism. And we're going to see different varieties. There's the Christian type, there's the secular type, and then there's the racialist type, which doesn't uh, intrude upon issues of theology at all. The desire to sound, anti- to sound scientific meant a departure from the term anti-Jew or Judenhaus, Jew hatred, in favor of something more sophisticated like anti-Semite. But it's not a very impressive term, nor is it an accurate term. After all, it implies that there's such a thing as Semitism, but there is no such thing as Semitism. The very notion of Semitism was a byproduct of 1760s and 1770s biblical studies where Christian scholars of the Bible examined the table of nations at the end of Parshas Noah, Genesis chapter 10, with the 70 different nations of the world, and said, well, there's Shem, Ham, Ve'yafet, you know, the three, the three sons of Noah, and the Japhethites live here, and the Hamites live here, and the Semites are here. But instead of seeing it only as a linguistic issue of, you know, the Bilbul HaLashon, Tower of Babel, they said, oh, no, these are racial groups with distinct racial features that are unalterable, that are, they cannot be changed. And for generations and centuries on end, these various groups will remain as they were. So the Semite is different from the Aryan or the Japhethite and is alien to this European community. Okay. 1879 was a turning point in modern Jewish history. 
It marks the beginning of modern anti-Semitism. Contemporaries tended to refer to this anti-Semitism as a movement, the anti-Semitic movement, especially the Berlin movement in the German capital, the Prussian capital, led by the court preacher Adolf Stocker, about whom we'll hear more soon enough. However, historians tend not to view anti-Semitism as a movement, but rather as ideology or ideologies, because there are multiple types of anti-Semitism, and a program for political parties, political parties with concrete goals, looking for representation in parliaments with an anti-Semitic agenda. Okay. And the anti-Semitic movement, if we're going to call it a movement, set as its goal the elimination of Jewish emancipation, or at the minimum, neutralizing the social effects of that emancipation. So basically, if you're in the extreme version, you want to roll it back completely. Send the Jews back to the ghetto where they, where they once were, or worse yet, kill them. And if you're more of a minimalist in the anti-Semitic camp, you say, well, it may be a foregone conclusion and irrevocable that Jews have certain rights, but let's tinker at the margins to reduce those rights. They have the right to vote. Yes, yes. Voting was not seen as a big deal. Uh, what was much more important were economic activity, government service, um, and immigration. What about quotas? Still? We're going to get to that soon enough. Yes, there will be a, there will be a, a view within the anti-Semitic movement in the 1870s, 1880s, very much in favor of school quotas, very much in favor of that. Okay, so now, um, whether the law grants Jews citizenship and equality could or should be revoked was contested among anti-Semites. But all agree that the role the Jews should be permitted to play in economic, political, and cultural life went beyond tolerable limits, meaning you've gone too far. You've entered into the mainstream way more than we ever wanted you to, and that has to be curtailed. Whether in the legal realm it happens or not, in the real world, it has to be rolled back. So hence the conclusion that emancipation as implemented by the state and exploited by the Jews for their own benefit, notice that expression, exploited by the Jews for their own benefit, was in need of some correction. Do you as an American Jew think you've exploited your emancipation for your own benefit? I mean, we tend not to think in these terms. We just live our lives because this is America. It's a different, different, different mindset. But when you're a newly emancipated person in a European country, you're very conscious of the fact that this is new and could in fact be undone, and that people who don't like me might think that I've taken far too much advantage of my recently gained rights. Okay. to marry, say, out of the faith? Yes, they could marry out of the faith, and that was a big deal, because the extent to which that happened was uh, disputed. The Jews would claim, sadly, that there was too much exogamy, and the anti-Semitic Goyim would say there was an insufficient amount of exogamy, thus proving that the Jews are a people apart, even though we've granted them rights. And therefore showing that they should never have been given those rights because they had no intent to integrate. So the question of intermarriage is a double-edged sword. We think there's too much of it. They think there's not enough of it, but they hate us. But the Christians weren't really running rampant to go and marry Jews. In certain social circles, it was quite common. Uh, even among people who hated Jews, to marry a Jew was not an uncommon thing. 
we're going to see Wilhelm Marr, the man who by, by this session is really about, three out of his four wives were Jewish. Simultaneous? Not simultaneously, no. Yeah. Yeah, sure. There were a lot of conversions, yes. Now, anti-Semitism, before being known by that name, was popular in the first few decades of the 19th century, meaning we're talking 1800, 1810, 1820, when the Jewish question was first being debated. And we spoke about this in the Napoleonic era a couple of weeks back. It reappeared in the 1870s. But for two generations, it basically was a dormant question. Nobody's talking about the Jewish issue. We're not too many people are talking about Jewish issues in Central Europe between the 1820s and the 1870s. So, yes, 1830-1848, there were moments of tremendous political turmoil and ferment. Uh, But during this time, only the ultra-conservatives were vocally opposing Jewish rights. Then, from 1873 to 1879, anti-Semitism was awakened. That is considered the incubation period for modern anti-Semitism, 1873 to 1879, that the full flowering of this movement is not just yet. It's the end of the decade, but for about six years, things are percolating. People, are, people in Germany and elsewhere, we're not going to talk about France and Austria tonight, but it was happening there too. It's just that the most famous examples were in, were in Germany. Okay, what happened? There was a major bankruptcy in Germany in 1873, either. And economic depression lasted off and on for a long time in Germany, basically until 1896. It was two decades that were basically lost decades. It was easy to blame the Jews for a widespread economic disaster, either because of their conscious, conspicuous participation in the phony economic boom that preceded the crisis, or because of the link between Jewish interests and the system of economic and political liberalism that allowed disaster to strike. Now, remember, what is liberalism? Liberalism is laissez-faire economics, as opposed to conservatism, which is tariffs, 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 uh, and economic protectionism of German trade, of German industry. Yes, absolutely. But not the first, like the third generation of Rothschilds. They're already divided up geographically between different cities. Okay. Now, frustration came, led to a frame of mind where any theory that would account for the people's suffering would likely be accepted if it could pin the guilt on some visible object. Meaning, you're looking for a fall guy. And if you could find a theory, even if it's only partly coherent, but mostly incoherent, still, people are looking to believe it. And the traditionally suspect Jewish minority becomes an obvious scapegoat. So here, Jews are involved in the, in, in, in the, the boom before the bust. Uh, Jews are typical scapegoats. Jews are involved politically in this regime, the early Bismarck years where he was allied with the national liberals. So convenient target. Bismarck ruled with the help of the National Liberal Party, which featured two unconverted Jews in the cabinet. So there were many... Uh, converted Jews, baptized Jews, who were involved in political life and had ascended to significant posts. But there were two really important ones who were still Jewish, who were not yet Goyim. One was Ludwig Bamberger, and the other, more even famous, more famously, was Edward Lasker. In 1873, in February, Lasker exposed and attacked the corruption in the railroad industry. There was a major uh, problem 
of a 900-mile railroad system that was being built uh, in Romania to connect Bucharest with all the other major European capitals. And it was being done by the Strasbourg firm, a Jewish firm. And it went bankrupt midway through. Uh, so the culprit in all this, who was built, guilty of some shenanigans, was Bethel Henry Strasbourg, who was a Jew who, who baptized. He converted out. So here, the, the whistleblower was a, not, was, a, was a Jew. The bad guy, the sort of the Madoff of this whole thing, was a baptized Jew. And people noticed that what's going on here? The good guy is a Jew. The bad guy is a Jew. The whole news is dominated by Jews. It was like the Rosenberg trial, where the, def- where the prosecutor was a Jew, the defendant was a Jew, the judge was a Jew, everybody was a Jew. Okay, so that's not a good thing when people are seeing these major scandals and there are too many Jewish names and faces in- around. The journalist Otto Glagow stressed the Jewish origins of promoters of dubious economic enterprises meaning the hucksters, the people who are going to make a quick buck, but not really do the work, but are involved in promoting various enterprises were typically Jews. And he said, Jews are taking over Berlin. What's the demographic situation in Berlin? So he said, since 1866, which was only seven years earlier, half the Duchy of Posen had immigrated to Berlin. The Duchy of Posen is where? Eastern Germany. It's basically Polish. Uh, it's the, the Polish-German border regions, and the Jews who lived there were not really Yekis. They were really p- kind of like Polish-type Jews, um, at least Eastern Posen. And a lot of them are moving westward to Berlin. The number of Jews in Berlin went from 20,000 to 50,000. Um, Out of how many people living in Berlin total? At that time, I'm not sure. But it was a substan- it's becoming a substantial percentage of the overall population. It's less than a million people in the city. So we're talking a noticeable percentage of the population is now Jewish. The children of Israel multiply themselves in Berlin as rapidly as they once did in Egypt. And he claimed that 90% of the jobbers and promoters are Jews. So all the hucksters are Jews. Jews were made out to be the prime swindlers of society. And the Berlin Stock Exchange was made to seem like an exclusively Jewish club. In fact, he said, they exercise dom- domination over us. They possess a dangerous supremacy and they exert an unwelcome, uh, unwholesome influence. The whole history of the world knows no other example of a homeless, physically and psychically degenerate people, simply through fraud and cunning, through usury and jobbing, ruling over the orbit of the world. So that's pretty tough language accusing the Jews of the worst uh, economic excesses. Uh, Yes, but it was always exaggerated, meaning there's more than a kernel of truth, but there's also a whole lot of uh, bluster and uh, and guzma be'alma, we would say. Then, at first, anti-Semitic agitation was outside the realm of party politics. That changed in 1875, when certain political parties realized they could gain at the ballot box by espousing, if not an overtly anti-Semitic agenda, at least uh, an implied anti-Semitic agenda. So the conservatives used anti-Semitism as a cudgel against liberal economic policies. They attacked the person of Gershon von Bleichroder. Von Bleichroder is famous for being Bismarck's banker. 
and the banker for the Prussian state. He was a close ally of the chancellor. And to attack Bleichroder meant to attack the government. So eventually what happens is Bismarck is forced to abandon his alliance with the national liberals and go into a cozy alliance with the conservatives, which is, of course, very bad for the Jews. Okay. Franz Perrault, not related to Ross Perrault, as far as I could tell, um, a conservative critic of Bismarck's economic policy, wrote, Jewish citizenship entailed the Jews' claim to hospitality and protection by the state, but not to the right of positions of authority. This misconception of emancipation led to the anomaly of Jewish dominance. Basically, what he's saying is the Jews got it all wrong. They thought when we gave them legal rights that they could do whatever they wanted, just like we can. But no, we just meant that you could uh, maybe vote a little bit or have some sufferance. But you can't take positions of authority. And if you try to do that, we're going to punch back and punch back hard. Perot pr- protested the founding of the German Reichsbank an idea initiated by Ludwig Bamberger. Interestingly, it reminds me of Alexander Hamilton, the Jew, uh, founding the Bank of the United States, uh, which we'll get to, we'll discuss Hamilton and American anti-Semitism soon enough. So uh, Perot considered this a deliberate invention to promote Jewish domination of Germany. One cannot be blind, he said, to the dangers connected with the fact that a people of alien stock, alien nationality, alien religion, Alien tongue, though in minority of one in 80 or one in 100 of the population, nonetheless now seizes all the capital in Germany, dominates press and opinion, guides the parliament and administration everywhere, pushes its way into top positions where for the time being they employ converted Jews in leading posts. That's a mouthful. What he really said is this. The Jews control everything. The, 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 the media, the government, the executive branch, the bureaucracy, and they're smart enough to put to the top positions people who took baptism. So this way, it's less controversial. After all, the person is really a Christian. But in his, this guy's mind, no, that person is still a Jew. So They're using this as a scapegoat for political parties. Well, it's not entirely disingenuous. A lot of people really believe this stuff, including the authors of these statements. Yes, there's political gain to be had by ousting the current regime in favor of your own, uh, by bad-mouthing the Jews and saying that the Jews are in cahoots with the chancellor. But they really believe this sort of thing, that the Jews are uh, in disproportion to their pop- to, the, to the demographics with way too much control over society. He says they're 1 in 80, 1 in 100, meaning the Jews are 1.5% of the population. Why should they have such uh, clout? Okay. Another fellow, Christian Willemans, asserted that it doesn't matter whether a person is a Jew in traditional form or a reformed Jew or even a baptized Jew, he cannot erase the immoral Talmudic influence on his character. So the immoral Talmudic influence on the character of the Jew, doesn't matter how from you are, how much of a shagitz or an apicorist you are, the Talmudic influence cannot be removed. This was based upon the Talmud Yud, uh, which was uh, written by Rowling. Rudolf Meyer, another one of these conservative uh, commentators, wrote, the Chancellor Bismarck belongs to the Jews and the speculators. He's in the pocket of the Jews and the speculators. So it's one thing for the conservatives, whom the Jews typically had nothing to do with, to badmouth them and try to use that as a political weapon. But there were other groups within society that um, had previously been on reasonable terms with the Jews, and now uh, things were turning for the worse notably the Freemasons. So uh, the Freemasons were, for the previous hundred years, at the forefront of accepting, you know, 
the Jew, the outsider, to become an insider in the Masonic lodges. But beginning in 1875, those lodges, which were previously welcoming of Jews, started to reject Jewish applications for membership. And some places, some lodges, even began expelling existing Jewish members. I'll tell Asher, he's in charge of the Masonic lodges over here. So even the avowed liberal, Theodore Mommsen, conceded that the Jewish community was far too peculiar, ethnically and culturally, to be easily integrated into the newly uh, united German nation. So here a liberal is saying, listen, we used to be 50 different principalities, 36 different states, duchies and grand duchies. Now we're one country. And we need to have a certain measure of cultural homogeneity. And we do. But the Jew just doesn't fit into that. Why? They're too different in a whole host of ways. So when liberalism was dominant, most of the German public had turned its attention away from signs of internal unity among the Jews. So the Jews never ceased to be a cohesive group. For all the religious differences, orthodox, reform, positive historical, whatever we disagreed about theologically, there still was a Jewish community. And the Gentiles conveniently ignored that for a good 50 years. Was there ever a group of, let's say, the Conference of Presidents in Berlin of, of these That would emerge as a, as a defense mechanism against anti-Semitism in the 1890s, the Verein for the Jews. We'll, we'll, we may speak about that at a later time. Now, the, the deliberate indifference to the Jewish, to Jewish community consciously changed into an emphatic awareness of the existence and unique character of that community. So basically, people went from ignoring the fact that the Jews are still a cohesive bunch to recognizing it and being very disgruntled by it. The turnaround happened at a time of economic crisis and a time of political change from a liberal to a, to a conservative regime. So this makes a lot of sense. If you're your average goy who doesn't absolutely hate the Jews, but isn't very fond of the Jews, then you allow emancipation to go about because you personally can't do much about it. It's just a large process that's happening in the country and your your influence is negligible. But it doesn't really matter. Okay, the Jews are emancipated. And what's going to happen? An expectation that they'll blend into the scenery. Well, you wait, you see, but they don't blend into the scenery. And now in time of crisis, that bothers you. What happened? We gave you emancipation. You were ceased to exist. You were supposed to cease to exist as an independent group. And it didn't work out that way. So we have a, a problem on our hands. The, the Gentiles thought that emancipation would make the Jewish community disappear. That clearly didn't happen. The community was dramatically transformed in the century of 1780 to 1880. And specifically from 1840 to 1880, there was rapid change. But Jews remained uh, connected to one another. What remained unimpaired was Jewish inbreeding, the maintaining of exclusively Jewish family ties. This and the residues of religious nonconformity, comparative economic concentration and social isolation and some cultural peculiarity still gave the Jews a special physiognomy. That's what Jacob Katz says. Basically, there's a few factors here. One, Jews still mostly marry Jews. They have close family ties that they don't have with the outside world. They're still economically concentrated in the lines of work that they used to do for the emancipation, especially in money and, 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 and trade. 
they're still socially isolated because there are a lot of whole places where they can't go, where they're not welcome. And to an extent, they voluntarily engage in social isolation. Okay? Especially if you're on the more religious variety, you can't eat in somebody's home if they eat trafe. Or you're not going to go uh, to their church. You're not going to go into where there's you know, religious iconography. So the Jew is still different, even if not all that committed to his own religious uh, tradition, he's still the other, very different. Was there a number, the percentage of quote-unquote orthodox Jews compared to the Jewish population? Too large, it seems to me uh, that that wasn't the case. It's hard to know exact numbers, but it's certainly true that by 1880, the orthodox in Germany were a very small group. the, the years where this shift occurred were between about 1840 and 1870. From, the, uh, from Abraham Geiger's earliest troublemaking and the Reform Rabbinical Conferences of 1844 to 1846, to then, you know, Hirsch's separatism of 1850. Uh, I mean, the, the communities evolved. Unlike in America, where Every synagogue is its own entity. In Germany, these were still official communities. And the rabbi was elected on the basis of where the community was headed. If it was headed toward the direction of, of, of liberal of reform, they would hire a chazer-fressing rabbi. If they were tr- still traditional, they would hire a traditional rabbi. But there were very few c- communities that retained a dominant traditional faction by 1880. Very few. It seems to me that the anti-Semite is not letting the Jew assimilate. Well, they don't like it especially. Right, but even though this was going on a natural progression of assimilation, they... they... Dismissive of its significance. Yeah. That's okay. okay, so... Uh, now, the wait-and-see attitude of the general, of the general population evo- involved the concealment and suppression of anti-Jewish sentiment. So for a long time, people who were anti-Semites in potential kept it under wraps and then burst forth with venom in the 1870s. And why? Because the Jew didn't change the way they wanted the Jew to change. The economy turned bad and the politics were moving in a conservative direction. Okay, now let's go to Wilhelm Marr. So in February of 1879, Wilhelm Marr wrote the victory of Judaism over Germanism. The victory of Judaism over Germanism. It was the first ever anti-Semitic bestseller. It went through 12 printings in its first year. Okay, the background of this guy is he was born in 1819, dies in 1904. He, he was, uh, his father was in the theater business, and he also was early, in early in life in the theater business then became a political radical, a socialist but anti-Marxist, was exiled, I think, to Switzerland for a while, then came back, was a member of the, of the, uh, the, the parliament in 1848, and then did this and that. It was kind of a low Yitzlach, in my opinion. Didn't really succeed at all that much. More of a politician. It was a, uh, in the realm of politics. And he was married four times. Three, the first three wives were either Jews or baptized Jews. The fourth wife was a real shiksa. But he developed very sour attitudes towards Jews sometime in the 1840s. We're not entirely sure why, 
but it flowered uh, very much so in the 1870s. Now, he posited that the danger of a Jewish takeover was not something to fear for the distant future. Rather, it had already happened. Judaism had already won. And he asserted that the Germans themselves were to blame for allowing it to happen. So why was this pamphlet so successful as a commercial venture and so famous in the long run? It wasn't because of the substance of the pamphlet. Basically, he didn't break any new ground in the token and the content. The reason it was successful was because, number one, it had an inflammatory title. Number two, it had a very sharp tone. And number three, it attacks its own readers. Uh, for when a, book, a, book can, a book can sometimes be very successful when it attacks the reader. And the reader thinks, oh, I got to read this. What did I do wrong? Um, it's like a mustachmuse for the Germans that they allowed the Jews to win. How did they allow the Jews to win? By electing Jews to the parliament, by allowing Jews to take over the banks and the press, and the, the, the usual spiel. Okay. But the main chidush of Wilhelm Marr was not what he included in the pamphlet. Rather, it's what he excluded from the pamphlet. He purposely left out politics. It was overtly anti-Jewish without identifying with any particular political preference. And this was an attempt to achieve broad appeal. Now remember, up until now, certain political factions, notably on the right side of the aisle, had been using anti-Semitism as a cudgel against the center and the left. But the truth of the matter is that the far extreme Marxists also hated Jews. And there were also some liberals who didn't like Jews. So Wilhelm Marr realizes, if I cut the politics out of this, I can gain support of people all across the spectrum. Because there are Jew haters all over the spectrum. It's a brilliant chidush on his part. Uh, there are those who would blame him for it, yes. Uh, the League of Anti-Semites is a forerunner of, of Nazi anti-Semitism, no doubt about it. Now, Marr pretended to doubt whether the fight against Jews was worthwhile. In other words, he, he speculates maybe this is already a lost cause. Well, if it's a lost cause, what are you writing about it for, buddy? The answer is he doesn't really believe it's a lost cause. One senses in his writing that that's just a, a tactic, a literary tactic. Really, he thinks that fighting the, uh, the, the fight of anti-Semitism has a promising political future for him and for whoever joins his, uh, his cause. He founded an anti-Semitic periodical in October of 1879 titled Deutsche He founded an association, the Anti-Yudische Verein. However, that association quickly changed its name to the Anti-Semitan Liga, the League of Anti-Semites. The goal of this league was to bring all non-Jewish Germans of all confessions, all parties, all positions uh, in life to one common close union that will strive towards one goal, to save our German fatherland from complete Judaization. So when you, when you say that we're under threat, that the Jews are going to totally wipe us out, they're going to dominate society, then we have to band together and overcome our various factional differences to fight the good fight. How much following did the Sultan of Rome have? We're going to see that it fizzles out pretty quickly. So Otto Glauga joined the cause and averred the social problem is simply the Jewish question. 
What does that mean? The social problem is simply the Jewish questions. It means that anti-Semitism is a panacea, that all the things that are wrong in society, we can resolve all of them. If only we solve the Jewish problem, it'll all go away. And we'll be kumbaya utopia if we solve this Jewish crisis. But they don't, the problem is it's of being Jewish or having Jews. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, Adolf Stocker, Adolf Stocker, who's a, man, a name I mentioned about 20 minutes ago. So he um, was a court preacher in Berlin, a, pro, a, a pro, pious Protestant. And he established the, uh, the Socialist Workers' Party, the, the Christian Socialist Workers' Party. He had trouble at, attracting the underclass as a socialist party. Uh, because he was wedded to church and state. Remember, he's a court preacher, which means he's he's associated with the with the monarchy, the state, but he's also a religious figure. And socialism doesn't mix well with monarchical government, or for that matter, uh, you know, the church. So instead, what did he do? He evolved. Whenever you have a problem, you evolve. And so he attracted a, a middle class following by appealing to anti-Semitic sentiment. He delivered a very notable speech on September 19, 1879. The title of the speech was, What We Demand from Modern Jewry. And what kind of chutzpah is that? Who is he to demand anything? The answer is he thinks he's the boss, so he can demand whatever he wants. And what is he demanding of modern Jewry? Well, he says that the Jews misunderstood the emancipation. Again, another guy who says they misunderstood. The Jews took the emancipation as licensed to behave as equals or even superior to native Germans. They ought to have recognized their position as that of a tolerated stranger and conducted themselves accordingly. So, you know, we're putting you in your place, Jew. Anti-Semitism did become a panacea or or was claimed to be one by middle-class Germans who saw themselves as falling behind the socioeconomic position achieved by Jews. You have that in other societies, even in America too, where certain groups who, who by virtue of their racial standing or religious standing thought that they were the top, the top of the heap, but they see people they don't like by virtue of skin color, religious preference, whatever it is, getting past them. And now they, they have you know, hatred in their heart and they want to do something about it. Professor Heinrich von Trotschke, made anti-Semitism respectable in academic and intellectual circles. So he was an important figure uh, in Germany and in the academy and was not known as a vicious bigot. And yet he gave anti-Semitism some, you know, some standing in the enlightened and cerebral world. Students are typically liberal. And yet in the late 1870s, they began turning against the Jews. Why? Okay? It's like when, when people complain that there are too many Asians at Stuyvesant High School. All right? What happened? Same thing here. The students feared competition from their Jewish colleagues, seeing Jewish students flock to secondary schools and universities far in excess of their proportion of the population. So just as we have in New York City, where people complain, oh, certain groups, are, there are way too many of them at the, at the elite high schools. Well, they get in by virtue of their talents. So the Jews are getting in by virtue of their talents. And those who are seeing themselves surpassed by the Jew they hate say, how could that be? 
We got to put quotas on them, quotas, quotas. Now, anti-Semites paradoxically saw themselves as participants in a defensive movement. They don't regard themselves as being offensively bigoted and trying to uh, harm a beleaguered minority. They see themselves as defending the homeland and defending the rights of the ethnic German from an assault engaged in by the Jew. And many in Germany acted as if a foreign invasion of Germany was imminent. The truth of the matter is there were people moving across the border, including plenty of Jews, but this was not really an issue of uh, demographic shifts on account of immigration. It was more that people see themselves uh, as no longer the dominant element within society, and they don't like that. Yes, we're going to see shortly that there is a machlokus about how far to take that. And, and, and some people want to go in the extreme and some realize that it really isn't, isn't doable. Okay. Many Jews themselves try to pull back. Okay, so that's a fascinating question. Were there Jews who felt that it would be prudent to restrict their social or economic or even political activity in order to avoid antagonizing those who would be offended by such activity? And the answer is probably yes. Um, especially among the Orthodox, who are more inclined to be satisfied with sort of a First Amendment freedom of religion kind of thing, and are less obsessive about political rights. And certainly during the Nazi era, you have, like sadly, these you know, letters written by Agudas Yisroel and other factions to Hitler, you know, basically saying, if you, give, if you allow us to keep Shabbos, we'll keep quiet. Um, that sort of thing. In the 1870s and 1880s, I don't think there was much of it, but I'm sure there were those people who thought about it. Okay. Now, for anti-Semites, the Jew wasn't merely a newly emancipated economic rival. Rather, the Jew was all things terrible uh, attributed by pre-modern prejudices, meaning the old images, the old Christian medieval images of the Jew are back. Certainly they're reconfigured to fit the the 19th century, but these images are back. The Jew is some sort of a devilish satanic figure that we knew from the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries and from Luther's time are now being resurrected in the service of modern anti-Semitism as well. Certain church figures do, especially Lutheran ones. Okay, now Eugene During wrote the Jewish question as a question of race, morals, and culture with a world historical answer. What Durin tried to do here is to skirt the issue of Christianity and the Jewish Christian schism. What he wants to argue is that the Jews were always the enemy of mankind, not just because they killed Jesus because they're Christ killers and deicides. No, 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 no. Forget Christianity from Roman times, Greco-Roman times, and in the Christian period, and in the post-Christian period, and he's an atheist, would bear in mind. So the Jew is always the enemy of, of humankind, of society. And that therefore all Gentiles need to take up self-defense against the perennial Jewish threat. So Stalker and During read odds with each other on Christianity. Stalker is a, 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 Protestant, a Protestant minister. And During is a, 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 denies the existence of a, of a supreme being. And yet they were in the same anti-Semitic movement. 
That was Wilhelm Marr's success. He was able to unite Christians and atheists, Catholics and Protestants, conservatives and former liberals. But this unity only went so far. The anti-Semitic movement broke apart over divisions about its aims and the legitimacy of various uh, means to achieve its goals. In other words, how far are you willing to go in the persecution of the Jew? Some people are willing to go a little bit, and some people are willing to go a whole lot further. Von Trotschke regarded emancipation as lamentable, but irreversible. So we, didn't, we wish it didn't happen, but it happened. Nothing we can do about it. Stocker called for amending the particulars of the emancipation. Like what? Limiting the number of Jewish judges, having no Jewish teachers in public schools, prohibiting Jewish immigration, no positions of governmental authority held by Jews, and a special Jewish census, which ultimately does happen during World War I, when they count to see how many Jews were fighting in the army. Eugene During was more extreme. He wanted to eliminate Jews from the face of the earth, in defense of humanity, of course. Now, Herzl was scared into Zionism by the racist writings of During. In the 1880s, in the early 1890s, Herzl freaks out and realizes, hey, no matter what we do, no matter what kind of a Jew I am, or even uh, hardly a Jew at all, this guy wants me dead. So we got to get out of here. I'm going to explain that in about four minutes. So the difference between Stalker and During manifested itself on the question of baptized Jews. For Stalker, the churchman, he had to accept baptized Jews as real Christians because you believe in the grace provided by the baptism. So if you're a Christian, you're my landsman, you're my friend, you're my colleague. Even if the baptism was done for uh, dubious reasons, just want to have social advancement, you don't really believe in, in, the, in the tenets of Christianity, oh, but you did it. You, tell, you had the water sprinkled and you said the, the magic words, you're a Christian. Whereas during and Mar and other fellow atheists had no reason to hold back. They believed that even a baptized Jew was still a Jew. And Glago wrote, from the baptized minister to the last Polish schnurrer, they constitute a united chain, meaning from the lowest level chassid in Poland who crosses the border in Poland and comes to Germany to the most assimilated Jew who took baptism five times over and has a cross on his neck, they're all one connected group. They're all just Jews. So, uh, this led to the inability to achieve common action. There was common sentiment in the anti-Semitic movement, but no agreement on action. And that causes the movement to fizzle out. But one thing that anti-Semitism did do was it furthered social isolation and segregation of the Jew. Jews had to now form their own student unions. They had to form their own Masonic orders. And B'nai B'rith, opened up in Germany. B'nai B'rith was founded in America, 1843, and by 1882 in Germany has 23 different branches because Jews need some uh, clubs, some lodges, some places to hang out where they'll be welcomed. And if the, the old Masonic orders are kicking them out, we have to have our own place. Jews are also now limited in their political choices. Yeah, they can vote for any party they want, but they're not going to vote for a party that's openly avowing anti-Semitism. Now, yes, Jews tended to go to the center and to the left and not to the right, but even within the center and the left, what happens if you have candidates that are basically uh, you know, stumping with 
an anti-Jewish message on the campaign trail. So who are you going to choose? So you're a very narrow part of the spectrum uh, for political choice. Was Bismarck and the government apparatus anti-Semitic or not? So that was Eli's question. The answer is they were ambivalent. Anti-Semitism was rejected by the government on formal grounds as a violation of the Constitution's guarantee of civil rights, irrespective of confession. In other words, there's no religious test for, for, for citizenship or for, them, for voting rights. Even if you're a Jew, a pious believer in Judaism and Talmudic Judaism at that, with uh, you know, a beard down to the floor, still, you're a citizen. The Constitution says so. So we're not going to do anything about it. But Bismarck himself never uttered a word of moral condemnation of all the, the rhetoric emerging from Mar and Mar's henchmen. So from 1879 and onward, and Bismarck is the chancellor until 1890, you don't hear a uh, peep condemning this sort of rhetoric. Okay, now in the time we have left, I want to go through uh, some, some of the text of Wilhelm Marr's uh, work. The victory of Judaism over Germanism. So he says the following. With this work, I intend less a polemic against Jewry than confirmation of a cultural and historical fact. So he's saying it's a fact that they won, that they took over the Jews. The polemical language that conditions sometimes force upon me can and must be understood as no more than a cry of pain from one of the oppressed. So here, the anti-Semite is identifying himself as an oppressed person. Of course, the Jew would say, no, you're oppressing me with your bigotry and your attempt to, to you know, squelch my emancipation. But Mars says, no, no, I'm the oppressed party here. A resigned pessimism flows from my pen. Think, if you will, he must be a queer bird. But be assured that no one would appear happier than myself if the facts I touch upon could be refuted. Meaning, Halavai, it wasn't true that the Jews took over. Countless times, we non-Jews have attacked Jews and Jewry in literature but always from the standpoint of our own overweening presumption. Our self-conceit still keeps us from the open and honest admission that Israel has become a world power of the very first rank. We knew the Jews well enough, but not ourselves. So what he's saying is we were denying the truth. We were, we really subliminally, we knew the facts. We knew the Jews had taken over, but it was too painful or embarrassing to admit that the Jew had achieved such high rank we didn't want to say it openly. So I'm going to break ground, new ground. I'm going to say it openly that the Jew has won. Be that as it may, this book should be permitted to lay claim to originality, written without a trace of religious prejudice, as it allows you to peer into the mirror of cultural and historical facts. So he's saying, I'm not a religious bigot. The truth of the matter is, he's not religious at all. He's, not, he's, he's hardly a Christian. He, and this is the viewpoint of the atheist anti-Semite that says, yeah, there was Christian and medieval anti-Semitism, and there may even still be religious anti-Semitism among church figures like Stalker and the others. But that's not me. I don't even believe in God, he's saying. But I still hate the Jew, and the Jew is still a problem. Okay. I have, ho- I have two hopes for this book. First, that it will not be killed by the silence of the Jewish critics. In other words, he's saying, well, the Jews control the media, the Jews control the, uh, the book review pages in the, in, the, in, the, in the newspapers, so there's always the possibility that I'll write this wonderful, amazing book, and yet what will happen? It'll be panned by the, by the critics, and it'll, it'll be buried uh, and, and put at the bottom of the list, the, the, the bestseller list, and so nobody will know about it. I won't get credit for what I, for what I deserve. And secondly, that it will not be finished off by your, by your own well-known, satisfied cliches. Okay. 
Without a shred of irony, I publicly proclaim the world historical triumph of Jewry, the news of a lost battle, the victory of the enemy without a single excuse for the stricken army. So the Jews won without firing a shot. I should like to believe that such candor deserves something better than the zealous Jewish accents of the newspapers. So here the, the, the newspaper is being anthropomorphized, that the newspaper now has a long nose, a long hooked nose and has a Jewish accent. Okay. Um, it is no ostentatious prophecy, but a deeply felt conviction when I say that no more than four generations shall pass before the Jews usurp absolutely every office of state, including the very highest. Meaning there'll be a Jewish prime minister or a chancellor of Germany within the next four generations, and they'll completely take over the state. Yes, Jewry shall raise Germany to a world power and make it the new Palestine of Europe. Now, this is fascinating. He's not saying the Jews will destroy Germany. He's saying the Jews will make Germany into a great power. It's just there'll be a Jewish power, not a Germanic power the way we want it to be. This is different from what, what is the typical anti-Semitic argument that says that the Jews are destroying society. No, no, they're elevating it, but in their way, not in our way. Uh, 60? Okay. Now, uh, it won't become by, by violent revolution, but by the voice of the people itself. As soon as Jew German society has reached that highest level of social bankruptcy and perplexity, towards which we are rushing headlong. Don't blame the Jews for it. Our Germanic element has shown itself culturally and historically powerless, incapable of achievement before alien domination. So he's bad-mouthing the Germans, saying, you guys are pathetic. You let this happen. You were unable to prevent the Jews from uh, occupying and taking over uh, your cultural space. This is a fact, a raw, pitiless fact. State, church, Catholicism, Protestantism, credo, dogma must bow before uh, the, 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 the Jewish daily press. Okay. Then he goes into uh, the history of the Jews, basically. Dear reader, stop gnashing your teeth in rage. Alien domination has been forced upon us. For 1800 years, the fight against Jewish domination has lasted. The Semitic race has borne indescribable suffering. So he's acknowledging the Jews have not had it easy. The Goyim have been bad to them. They pummeled the Jews until not that long ago. You have roughly mishandled them, but rarely have you combated them spiritually. So yes, the Jews suffered casualties. The Jews were made to suffer physically, but the Goy did not battle the Jew in the spiritual realm. From feeble beginnings, Jewry has grown beyond you. It has corrupted all society with its views. It has driven out any kind of idealism, possesses the controlling positions in commerce, infiltrates state offices, rules the theater, constitutes a sociopolitical phalanx, and has left you a little more than the manual hard labor it has always despised. So now he's typical anti-Semitic tropes. First he said, oh, the Jews are really going to elevate Germany to a new Palestine. It's going to be great. Their version of great, not our version of great, but great. Now he says, no, no, they corrupted everything. They're terrible. So he doesn't really know which direction he wants to go in. It's a tati disasri, basically. It's a, it's a contradiction. But contradictions happen in anti-Semitic literature. He says they control the theater, they control the finance. And what do they not want to do? They don't want to do manual labor, hard physical work the Jew is averse to. So what does he leave you to? Eh, the goyim will do it. 
Okay. It has reduced talent to rattling, rattling superficial finesse, has made that uh, advertising into a goddess of public opinion. In short, the Jew lords over you today, advertising, the idea that the Jews are able to convince people of things with their clever and cunning advertising. And they're able to convince people that what's not in their interest is in their interest. There are parallel examples in other places, in Austria, in Hungary, and in France. But the, the uh, strongest intellectual component of it is in Germany. Um, and we'll, we're going to end up talking about Austria a little bit when we get to it, because it's relevant for, for Hitler. Since he grows up in Linz, and, and he's an Austrian, we're gonna, and we'll, we'll talk about Karl Luger, the mayor of Vienna. We'll get to that in probably in about two weeks, because next week we're going to do France. Yes, yes, without a doubt. Well, Vienna is is also in the same same vein. Okay. Now, are we capable of sacrifice? Have we even succeeded and created a single nonpartisan anti-Jewish newspaper? Are not even our housewives clubs and similar associations under Jewish patrons who combine business with pleasure for their own profit? I mean, even the ladies' auxiliaries, ladies' organizations are dominated by Jews for the sake of making money. Does, does not Jewry flow into the pores of our life, that every aspect of life has become come to dominated by Jews? So he's saying we have to establish a nonpartisan anti-Semitic movement, which will combine everybody under one roof. You may gnash your teeth about German apathy. I bow down in amazed admiration before this Semitic race that has set, it, that has set its foot upon our necks. So here, the foot of the Jew is on the neck of the, of, of the German. Having gathered up the last trace of human energy, I am resigned to enter into Jewish slavery, not to surrender or ask for quarter, but only to die as peacefully as possible. So he really goes over the top with his rhetoric that uh, this is a, a cause to the death to battle the Jew. Well, what happens here? You know, Wilhelm Marr uh, doesn't achieve all that much for himself. Yes, he had a, a bestseller. But the anti-Semitic movement does not secure its political goals. Uh, there is no rollback in the, uh, the pre-World War I era of Jewish rights, at least those that had already been attained. Things are moving on a favorable trajectory. Now, of course, that will all come crashing down in the Nazi period, and Jewish emancipation really only lasted about 62 years. But in this tekufa, this era... Uh, the desires of the anti-Semites are not really fulfilled at the political level, only at the social level, only at the social level to further segregate the Jew. There is a claim by Professor Moshe Zimmerman that on his deathbed, Wilhelm Ma recanted his anti-Semitism. Uh, you can look it up, uh, Moshe Zimmerman's uh, articles on this subject, that uh, Ma regretted having developed this theory and he understood that he took it too far and it, it'll lead to, to disaster, it could lead to, to genocide, whatever it is, that, that he recanted his bigoted views. I don't know whether, whether that has any merit or not. I'm no professor to, 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 to opine on this, but that's what is claimed. Okay, so we'll stop here. Next time, we're going to turn to France. We're going to cover Dreyfus, but not just Dreyfus. I want to cover anti-Semitism as it was building up in France in the 19th century, getting to the point that 
a leading figure in the military could be accused by a, by a colleague of treasonous behavior and have it be believed by a whole swath of society. You know, the Dreyfusards were against the anti-Dreyfusards. And society was not evenly divided, but significantly divided. Why is it that they could believe without merit the accusations of that variety against a person who seemed to be patriotically a Frenchman? So in order to understand that, you have to see how it built up uh, since the Napoleonic times up until 1900. So we'll see you all next week.